Okay, just gonna be honest, I have now started and stopped recording like six times. Because I'm just trying to figure out the words to say in regards to this week. So it's been a really painful, frustrating, sad week to be an American citizen and um, to be a follower of Jesus in some ways. We can, we can do better. We can do better. This world is, uh, and I would say even our country, our country specifically right now is just experiencing quite a bit of darkness and a shift. And there's been a lot of tremors and um, warnings to the church over the last number of years in the last year this world needs the hope of Jesus more than other ever and the the problem is is that many of the people who literally wave the flag of Jesus aren't aren't pushing light into the world and we've confused a lot of things. Not all of us. I say us in the tribe of Jesus followers. So I don't want to get political and all that kind of stuff with you. You may be really mad at the things I'm saying. I'm just telling you that our world needs better from us. And our world needs to see Jesus, and we need to see Jesus in our world. And so I just want to pray to start because there's a lot of work for us to do and to be a part of. And it does start with us. It does start in our own homes and in our own lives. So let me pray. Father, this morning we are humbled. We are frustrated and broken sad, maybe even a little ashamed of the witness that we have, that we have seen happen in this world in, in your name. And we're reminded that in the Old Testament that this idea of taking, uh, taking the name of God and um, hurting it or misusing it is something you abhor. And so God, we want to be worshipers of you alone. Period, end of story. You've not called us to worship a country. You've not called us to worship a document. You've not called us to worship liberty. You've called us to worship you. And we have to get that straight. For anybody who follows Jesus, we have to get that straight. 
So would you meet us here this morning as we enter into this conversation of being healthy for the sake of the world? We pray these things in your name. Amen. So church, we've started this conversation about being healthy and I've already taken four minutes and so we're going to fly. Um, and this is kind of part two of an introduction into this conversation about being a healthy followers of Jesus, to, to actually see our role in the world as people who are following Jesus, choosing to be with Jesus, become like Jesus, and do what Jesus did in, in real serious ways as a whole person. So this actually requires us to look at our lives as a whole, that we are whole people, and we want to be like Jesus. Now, I just want to take a minute to, to just say that... Um, you know, just to remind you as someone who's teaching here on video that I don't have it all together. Um, I came across a quote here recently that says, no pastor lives up to what he preaches. If he does, or if she does, um, they're, not, they're preaching too low. And I just want you to know that I haven't figured this out. And, um, and, and then, and also in response to last week, if, if you're really nervous about this series, if you're thinking, oh, this... This all sounds like a bunch of pop psychology, and, um, and I don't know if this fits really with my life or what I've been taught when it comes to following Jesus. I just want to encourage you that the life of introspection, meaning the, the way we look into our lives and how we respond and how we live, um, in a very deep way, goes all the way back to the early followers of Jesus. In fact, Augustine... In his book, Confessions, um, which is basically an autobiography of his life and how broken he saw himself as a follower of Jesus, um, he actually says uh, this in his book. This is like book 10, and I'm reminded of this on a podcast I was listening to this week. Um, in Latin, it says, Noverum me, noverum te, which basically means, let me know myself, let me know you. In fact, John Calvin, in his famous book, uh, his theology, The Institutes, um, actually talks about the fact that we cannot know God fully without fully knowing ourselves, and vice versa. That there's some quality of the fact that a follower of Jesus must dive into uh, their self and who they are and how they act and how they behave and their feelings and their emotions. So, so when it comes to us... Two quick things that we need to, we need to really understand. Uh, one, we're going to talk about more heavy next week, but um, two quick things. One, you and I have a story. We have origin stories. We have a family of origin. We come from something. We, we have uh, influences in our lives that have direct impact into who we are. We bring with us a story. The second thing is you need to understand, we're going to kind of zone in on today, is you and I are complete people. We are whole persons. Um, and the reason why I say that is that there are really five key components to being a human being, to be a whole person. And that is a social component, uh, an intellectual component, um, a spiritual component, a physical component, and an emotional component. Now, I just want to be really quick on this because 
I think uh, just in surveying my own life, um, and don't worry, we're going to get to Scripture here shortly. We're going into John 4, so those of you who are kind of freaking out, where's the Bible? It's coming, okay? So, um, but when I was being uh, discipled, really, when I was being taught what it looks like to follow Jesus, um, when it came to the social part, it was about fellowship, it was about meeting together, it was about accountability, and it was about the one another's, right? Love one another, bear with one another, forgive one another, the one another's, uh, the social component. I was the intellectual component, which I got to be honest with you, I got a heavy dose of um, in uh, Christian college and in seminary. So, I mean, I've been intellectually um, bombarded. Um, and, and this is where, to be honest with you, this is where the locus I felt of discipleship was. And I no longer feel that. Um, but I was taught theology, I was taught doctrine, I was taught apologetics, which is the defense of the faith. Um, and then there's spiritual side, okay? I was taught how to have a quiet time, how to pray, how to journal, how to be in solitude. I was taught those things and continue to practice those things. Um, the physical side, I was taught holiness um, and modesty. To So for me, uh, just... You know, you know, to not wear a revealing clothes because it, it makes it makes all the all the ladies stumble. Um, but no, I'm just kidding. The, the, I was taught how to care for myself um, in, in a right way, to, to be healthy, to exercise, to all those things. But emotionally, here's what I was taught. Okay, here's what I was taught. Um, I was taught facts over feelings. That's what I was taught. Um, I'm not saying this is what my parents taught me. Um, I'm saying that this is what my, the, the Christian culture taught me, okay? The church culture taught me. In fact, it was, it's kind of rooted in Jeremiah 17, 9, which goes like this. The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? So I was taught that negative feelings were, uh, were not to, to be... Uh, listened to, and uh, they were supposed to be kind of suppressed, and you were supposed to replace those negative feelings with joy and happiness, and because um, uh, you're you're going to heaven when you die, so don't be depressed um, because you're going to heaven when you die. Um, and I was never taught my emotions well; like I was never taught to deal with anger well, um, and I was taught, in a sense, to cover up the negative emotions with positive ones. Um, and I was never taught that in my apprenticeship to Jesus, how to manage my emotions, like how to pay attention to them, how to um, uh, let them, you know, speak uh, my, rea my reality. And so here's how I know this. Here's why I know this. Because there was an event that happened in my life in college. So um, I come to follow Jesus. I'm, you know, high school doing the youth group thing. I get to college. Uh, two years into my college days, I was given the opportunity to be a resident advisor. So an RA, okay, at a Christian college. And so I was in charge of a whole stairwell full of guys. Um, in a sense, I was their pastor and I was their, um, I was the disciplinarian, all that kind of stuff. And so there's a meeting of all these other RAs one day. And instead of talking about, um, you know, things we need to do and issues we need to solve and strategy and things like that, 
it became a very emotional experience. Um, people were sharing things. There was uh, confession. There was, there was this, uh, people were uh, opening up about their past and trauma in their life. And there was a lot of tears. And I was very uncomfortable. I was very uncomfortable. In fact, I started getting very mad. In fact, people could tell I was getting angry and they asked me, Ryan, what, what are you feeling right now? What's, what's going on? And I was like, this is a bunch of crap. We're here to do a job. We're here to care for people. And um, this is just a waste of time. So just, you know, I just felt like people needed to get over themselves. Let's just move on. We have work to do. We're, we're supposed to be mature if we're in this position. And actually, my outburst uh, hurt a lot of feelings. And um, I just felt like looking, you know, that people were weak at the time and um, that I wasn't weak. And it turns out, it took me about 20 years to figure out that actually I was the weak one and their vulnerability and their authenticity was very strong. That uh, my emotions, I was not, I was angry because I actually felt anxiety. And I felt anxiety because of something deeper in me that I wasn't willing to talk about. Tremper Longman says this in his book, The Cry of the Soul with Dan Allender. He says, the reason we don't want to feel is that feeling exposes the tragedy of our world and the darkness of our hearts. The route to facing what we feel is not by valuing the darkness of what we feel, but by valuing the deep structure of why we don't want to feel. Meaning there's a reason we don't want to feel. And once we face why feeling is so hard, then we can move beyond what we feel to the deeper energy within it, within is that keeps us from grappling um, honestly with our emotions. When we will not only feel more deeply, oh sorry, then we will not only feel more deeply, but more importantly, we will feel our feelings in a way that exposes our struggles with God. Ultimately, our unwillingness, my unwillingness to feel, exposes one of the main struggles I had with God. I didn't trust God. I didn't think that God wanted to hear all of me, that God loved all of me. And so I buried some of the things, the anger, the frustration, the anxiety, the depression that I did not want God to see. Last week, we talked about these three ways that typically people um, avoid dealing with their emotions. Some of them is to uh, detach. That's the Eastern spirituality. Um, the Western part, it, and what I was doing was covering it or faking it. And then the secularist one is to escape it. And I think that we had a good conversation in our house churches last week about the different ways that we tend to um, take parts of all three of those. Um, but understand that you and I are whole people. And if we're going to apprentice Jesus, we need to understand that we have a story and that we are whole people. But here's the thing. Not, not all of us is visible. Not all of us is even visible to ourselves. Think of the image of an iceberg. And this has been used as an analogy before, so there's nothing new here, but this idea that, that only part of the iceberg is visible above the waterline. 
that in fact most of the structure of the iceberg is not visible. That you can't see it. Okay? Uh, but it's holding this piece out of the water. Um, and so that's the visible part. And you and I all have a visible part. It's, it's just like the Jahari window. And I'll briefly show this on the screen. Um, that there are four parts uh, that uh, psychologists... Uh, this one guy, Jonathan and Harrington, so Jahari, um, window, they, they come up with this idea that you and I are a sum of, of, of these percentages, meaning there's the public self, the part that everybody sees, the part that we acknowledge about who we are. There's the hidden self, this idea that um, it is hidden from us, um, that there's uh, certain things about us that other people can see, but we haven't really come to recognize yet. Um, there's the part of us that's the secret self that, that you, we know per personally, individually, um, and we keep a secret from everybody else. And then there's this part of us that's really unknown. And all of that stuff, except for that public part, is below the surface of the waterline. So those are the, the two things that we need to understand about us, um, this idea of Augustine's confession, uh, to know myself to know God. So to know myself, we have a story and we are whole people and, and not completely. Um, there's a, there's a lot of us that is just not, um, in public view. And we just need to recognize that as we head into this journey. The second part is that we need to understand is about God. Last week, we talked a bunch about the life of Jesus. We'll get into that here in a second, but we need to also understand that God in in, in God's character, in God's revealed through the scriptures, uh, through the human authors who have communicated about God and have communicated uh, God's emotion through their writings uh, from God, we see a whole list of things. We'll throw, show those on the screen here of, of the ways that in the Old Testament, okay, um, that God has been communicated either about himself or by his people. So I'll just take a look at this list. Take a look at this, these words, these phrases on the screen. Um, and the second thing is you need to understand, so, so God is emotional clearly through all these, these communicated phrases through Scripture. But you also need to understand that you and I are created in the image of God. That in the Genesis story, the Imago Dei, the image of God that God has created, he created plants, animals, all these things. But when he got to human beings, he says, I created you in my image and my likeness. So if God is emotional, we are emotional. And if God has a range of emotions, and we see in Jesus a range of emotions... We have a range of emotions. This is called theological anthropology, meaning the study of God and the study of humanity and at the same time. I love this quote. It's a long one. It's from Philip Yancey, one of my favorite authors ever. And he wrote this about Jesus. And this is just a recap of last week's conversation about who Jesus was. Because we have a tendency to see Jesus as this robotic, kind of detached figure. But listen to this, and this just sets up where we're going to finish today. 
The personality that emerges from the Gospels differs radically from the image of Jesus I grew up with, an image I now recognize in some of the older Hollywood films about Jesus. In those films, Jesus recites his lines evenly and without emotion. He strides through life as the one a calm character amongst a cast of flustered extras. Nothing rattles him. He dispenses wisdom in flat, measured tones. He is, in short, the Prozac Jesus. In contrast, the Gospels present a man who has such charisma that people will sit three days straight without food just to hear his riveting words. He seems excitable, impulsively moved with compassion, or filled with pity. The Gospels reveal a range of Jesus' emotional responses. Sudden sympathy for a person with leprosy. Exuberance over his disciples' successes. A blast of anger at cold-hearted legalists. Grief over an unreceptive city. And then those awful cries of anguish in Gethsemane and on the cross. He had nearly inexhaustible, inexhaustible patience with individuals, but no patience at all with institutions and injustice. So I just want to recap where we're headed. If we all have a story and, and, and there's things that are visible above the surface and below the surface. And we all are whole people, meaning we are physical, intellectual, emotional, social. And uh, there's another one in there, beings. If we're, complete, if we're complete people, whole people, and if God is emotional, as witnessed in the life of Jesus, and if we are created in the image and likeness of God, meaning we are emotional beings, then how can we apply, okay? How can we apply an, the reality of an emotional God who created emotional human beings and who wishes us to live our emotional lives well? How do we apply that? Well, I think we need to ask ourselves some really, really good questions. And I'll give you a hint. It's super easy because they all start with why. And case in point, what I want to do is look at John chapter four, because in John chapter four, and some of you read this in house church, um, it's the story of the Samaritan woman and the Samaritan woman at the well. And this is interesting conversation because um, most of my life, when I've looked at this story, I've looked at it, the perspective of the fact that Jesus is blowing past a whole bunch of cultural norms just to have a conversation with this woman, woman at the well. But in, in, in rereading it and kind of looking at it in the relationship to question asking, um, the, the, the woman at the well is actually given a whole lot of questions by Jesus, a lot of probing questions. He confronts her with why questions. So I'm going to read it. It goes like this. Verse 3, so he left Judea and went back uh, once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given his son Joseph. Gives us some context. 
Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from his journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? And there's a little notation here that says his disciples had gone into town to buy food. So Jesus is by himself by the well. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Another note. Jesus answered, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. He's saying there's something bigger and deeper happening here than just a drink of water. And Jesus answered, um, I'm sorry, so, sir, the woman said, verse 11, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? So again, she's still looking at the surface. She's still looking at things she can see. She's still looking at the circumstance. Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. Again, she's still thinking it's the physical. She's still thinking it's what she can see in her circumstances. He told her, Go, call your husband and come back. Verse 17, I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. So this is where Jesus begins to go underneath the waterline, underneath the surface. He wants to wrestle with the things that are not visible in her life. And she doesn't want to wrestle with the things that are below the waterline and not visible in her life. And it sounds familiar to me personally because that's how I live. I don't want to wrestle with the things that are under the surface in my life. Because there's, uh, here's the thing, Jesus wants to because there's healing and wholeness and, and, and transformation that can happen below the surface. But human nature isn't to deal with those things. And so he begins to, in a way, start asking some implied why questions. Uh, why, are we, why are you at the well in the middle of the day? Because you feel ashamed? Why are you running from husband to husband? What void are you trying to fill? And so she begins to do what, well, I think you and I begin to do. And that's change the subject. That's to escape. It's to cover things over or detach. She says, sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. So kind of a change of subject a little bit. And she attempts to sidetrack the conversation and move things, keep things above the surface. Verse 21, woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. 
Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth. For they are a kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. So this is just another, this is like, that'll happen someday, she's saying, and I'll deal with it, with it then. And then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Jesus is saying, I'm here right now. And then the, the, the disciples come back and there's, there's some interesting things that happen there. Um, Jesus is probing and trying to get her to examine her life. Jesus is trying to get underneath the surface, the part of her life that she does not want to show, uh, to reveal, uh, to deal with. All this history in her past in some ways, is one insatiable thirst for love. And Jesus does the same thing with many others. This isn't the only time. He does this, the same game with the religious Jews, the, the Pharisees. He talks about how they're so interested in, in cleaning the outer uh, self that, that they paid no attention to the dirt on the inside. He talks to them about whitewashed tombs. He says, you look great on the outside, but inside there's death. And so here's the thing what's so interesting. Um, it happens at the turn of the year for many of us. Is that there's an opportunity for reflection. There's an opportunity to maybe look ahead. And one of the interesting little things that happened this year is... Um, Sydney, my daughter, um, she does a, a thing called uh, a leap second um, where it takes all the videos you've taken on your iPhone over the years or smartphone and um, you can create uh, little one second snippets of your year and it's it's a riot it's so much fun it's so much fun to look back and crack up at little facial expressions and uh, we got a lot of cats in our videos and things like that but as I was reflecting on that, I was also reflecting on our conversation heading into this year about emotion. And so I started to think about the different emotions I've experienced in 2020. And I started to ask myself, why questions? And so I'm gonna be, I guess, a little vulnerable here. And I'm gonna list off, these are the questions there's probably more, but these are some of the why questions I asked myself in 2020. Why am I in such a hurry? Why am I so impatient? Why am I so anxious? Why am I so angry? Why do I eat more when I am down? Why am I arguing with this person inside of my head right now? Why do I dread this phone call? Why do I dread this meeting? Why am I wanting to check out right now? Why do I have a difficult time being alone and quiet? Why do I feel anxiety talking about race? Why do I avoid this person? Why do I feel insecure right now? 
Why am I bitter? Why do I avoid conflict? Why do I have so many strong opinions about silly things? Why do I get mad when I think about this person? Why am I sad right now? See, what I'm learning in my life is all these emotions are tethered to something much deeper in my life. And what I'm also being reminded of is that God's grace is big enough to deal with everything below the surface. Everything below the surface. The stuff that I know is there and I don't want to admit. The stuff that other people see in me that I don't really understand yet. Um, and the stuff that I don't know where this is coming from. All of that stuff is covered by God's grace. But God doesn't want us to just leave it there. God wants to actually heal. God wants to actually form us and transform us and become the kind of people that God wants us to be. So back to this quote from last week. Ignoring our emotions is turning our back on reality. Listening to our emotions ushers, into, ushers us into reality. And reality is where we meet God. So there's, there's more of God for you and I to discover. There's more of God for you and I to meet. Jesus wants to deal with the stuff that is below the surface. So, so for some of you, you might be sitting there and going, you know what, I, I gotta be honest with you, that I don't feel like God has, um, that I've really had encounters with God in the last couple of years. I feel very stagnant. I feel like I, I haven't seen God work in my life in the last couple of years. Maybe, maybe you're like me um, and maybe you have avoided going below the surface. Initially in our following Jesus, everything's new. Grace and forgiveness and your, the, 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 the scriptures are just coming alive to us and we're learning and we're growing and we're, we're, we have new friendships and all those things are great. But God doesn't want to stop there. Jesus has a whole lot more for you than good feelings. Jesus actually wants to transform you to a very, very deep level. There is more for God for you and me. And because the theological revelation that God in Jesus is an emotional being, okay, who has deep feelings for human beings. He has deep feelings for humanity. It's it's, it has enormous implication. God loved the world, for God so loved the world, is the motivation for sending Jesus to earth to be with us. Apparently, the reason God meddles in human affairs is because of his feelings for us, that he loves us. And so the main reason why we're pursuing this conversation together is because we want to be as whole people with our whole selves. We want to follow Jesus, not just intellectually, not just socially, but emotionally, physically, with our whole being, spiritually. And why? Why do we want to do this? Why do we want to follow Jesus with our emotions? Well, 
to wrap up, because doing the work, okay, of becoming more aware of your feelings and your actions and the impact our actions have on other people is, is so important if we want to enter the lives of other people. Well, I mean, the question is, how can we really enter someone else's life if we've never really entered our own? And some of you might be going, Ryan, I don't want to enter anybody else's life. I don't want to deal with all that. When I would say, really? Because that's really the focus of what it looks like to follow Jesus. I mean, think back to Philippians 2, that, that beautiful poem of how we're supposed to treat each other. That God humbles himself, uh, that Jesus humbles himself and becomes human, enters our world, enters our garbage because of his love for us. We're apprentices of Jesus. We're actually called, okay, to enter the lives of others. Not barge in and say, hey, listen. No, no, to, to in relationship, in love, to enter people's worlds. And if we're unwilling to enter the darkness in our own world, how are we going to enter the darkness of this world? You know, in the stories of Scripture, you got the conversation in Job. You got Jeremiah's anguish um, about God's word burning in his heart. You got Moses' struggles in the wilderness. You have David's anguish and feeling abandoned by God. You have all these things. And I, I observe real people in Scripture, real people, real emotions. And, and it's brutal and painful honesty wrestling with their emotions and their feelings and the realities of this world and everything going on around them. And that is why their lives speak so powerfully to us. That's why your life can speak powerfully to others if you're willing, okay, to not lose the plot line of why you're here. You're not here, you and I are not here as to attend church um, and to uh, protect our children from the big bad world. We're actually here um, to push the kingdom further, to enter the kingdom, enter people's lives with the announcement that Jesus is Lord. And we can't do that if we're not allowing God to be Lord over everything in our life that is below the surface of our public self. Here's, here's what I mean. Here's the dangerous part. Okay, you can function as a house church leader, okay, and be unteachable and insecure and defensive. So you could be one of our house church leaders, and I know you're all sitting around at a house church right now going, are you, are you uh, defensive and insecure? Um, you can memorize entire books of the New Testament and still be unaware of your depression, anger, and how you displace it on other people. You can fast and pray a half a day a week for years as a discipline and constantly be critical of others, and you can justify that criticism with, 
It's just discernment. You can lead dozens of people in some Christian ministry. You could start a Christian ministry and, and you could be driven by some deep personal need to not be a failure. You can pray for deliverance from the demonic realm when in reality you are simply avoiding conflict. Repeating an unhealthy pattern of behavior traced back to the home in which you grew up. And here's the deal. You can be outwardly cooperative in our church, in, uh, uh, on the leadership team, in a house church. Um, but you could be a jerk at your office. You can be a constantly uh, late for things and forgetting meetings and withdrawing and not caring, being apathetic. You could ignore real issues of hurt and anger in your life. Emotional health. Okay, this is from a guy named Pete Cazero. He says this, emotional health and spiritual maturity are inseparable. It is not possible to be spiritually mature while remaining emotionally immature. So the call for you and I is a journey. Okay, it's allowing God, the God who loves us by sending himself uh, in Jesus and the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead to do work in us, to help us ask the hard questions. And so my encouragement for you this week is to get alone, to spend some time, list out some questions. Why do I blank? Why do I feel blank? And maybe you'll see some patterns in your own life. And maybe you can go to a spouse or a trusted friend or, or, or someone in your life that you care about and, and just say, hey, when I, when I am blank, when I'm angry, when I'm frustrated, when I am withdrawn, what is the impact that it's having on you? I, I just, here's the deal. Church, I dare you to do some of this work. And here's why. It's not just for you. It's for our world. Our world that if you look around right now, it is an emotional train wreck. Followers of Jesus, not followers of Jesus, we are emotionally immature people. The light of Jesus needs to come through people who are doing hard things, saying hard things, asking hard things, forgiving um, owning up to junk in our lives. That's where the gospel is going to transform. Um, I've been reading this great little book by a guy named Frank Labak, and he was a missionary in Indonesia in 1930. He wrote letters back to his dad. And this letter comes from March 9th, 1930. And this is one of his commitments for moving forward. And he's dealing with a whole bunch of the people in Indonesia who are all um, Muslim. And he is trying to uh, care for them and love them and, and spread Jesus. And he says this, I must pursue this voyage of discovery. And he's talking about his own life and everything under the surface. In quest of God's will. I must because the world needs me to do it. Uh, restoration, this isn't a self-help exercise so that you can feel better. 
This is an exercise about what it looks like to follow Jesus and to be the light in the world. And so this morning, as we move to the table, um, we're taking communion this morning. And so if you need to pause the video and grab your communion supplies, do it. Um, but I'm going to drag over my handy communion table. And um, I forgot to pour the juice, so we're just going to do that now while you're getting your stuff. This is not a perfect, you know, rendition of the Last Supper, um, but this is um, the centerpiece of what we do, what, who we are as uh, the people of God. Um, we have been invited to the table. We have been invited to the table by the God of the universe who made himself one of us, and then walked towards the cross. And as we talked about last week, uh, it wasn't his first choice. He agonized. And in the night before he was betrayed, he was in a Passover meal with his, with his dudes, with his people. And sitting at the table is actually... One of the guy, the guy that's going to betray him. And he's still at the table. He's still invited to the table. And we are people of the table. And this whole series is going to talk about the table in some way or another. And we'll get to more of that as we go. But on the night that Jesus took this bread, he broke it. Okay. And he passed it around the table and he says this is my body which is broken for you I'm breaking my body for you and every time that you break bread together every time that you supper together you not only remember But you offer yourself for this world. So take and eat. And then he did a very amazing thing at a Jewish Passover meal. He passed the cup again. Remember, Jesus was always uh, being, he was always being uh, accused of being a drunkard and a glutton. Kind of why I like Jesus. But he passes the cup to his disciples again. And he holds it up and he says this. Final cup is my blood spilled for you. My body broken and now my blood spilled. Take and drink. God, this morning we were reminded of the fact that following you actually requires much from us. Yes, all the perks are great. Uh, eternity, um, you are remaking this world for us to live in. We're resurrection, um, a new family adopted into your uh, family, um, all those beautiful perks. 
But following you also means laying down our lives, taking up our cross. Those are difficult things. The table represents all of it. It's an invitation to feast, and it's an invitation to die with you. God, there are things in our lives this morning that need to die. There are questions in our lives that need to be asked so that we can go below the surface to experience the healing that you want to bring us. Emotions in our lives are a way that you want to meet us in our reality. And that's where you want to meet us every single day. God, will you give us the courage to be your people? To be the light of the world? To do the hard work? So that we can be light in the lives of the people around us? We pray these things in your name. Amen. Church, I love you. I know it was long. Go talk about it.